let's take our Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 3. We had such a good time in worship and in communion that I'll try to keep this brief this morning. Matthew chapter 3. Last week we started a uh, study series looking at the life of John the Baptist and we established the first of four characteristics that led Jesus to call John the greatest man ever born of a woman. Now, it's interesting when we think about John uh, having that designation from God himself that John never did a miracle. John's teaching was not um, theologically uh, profound and overwhelming. He didn't delve into the Old Testament and explain what the prophets said and, and get into all that. So he never did a miracle. He never taught anything uh, that was necessarily theologically uh, deep. And he never drew attention to himself. Those three characteristics are interesting because not only did that embody him, but anybody who saw him, anybody who came out to the wilderness, would have seen what anybody would explain as a weird, hairy, strange-smelling, odd man. And that's not being mean, that's just who he was. Dressed in camel's fur, uh, eating locusts and honey, living in the wilderness for what we figured last week was at least 12 or 13 years by himself, uh, with nobody around him, no family, no friends, just waiting. And here is this hairy, fur-covered, smelly, locust and honey-eating man who Christ himself says there's nobody who's ever been born who's greater than him. Now, as we started to look at his life last week, we gained a lot of insight and application, and we're going to be studying him all this month, and again, each week, uh, we're going to be looking at his life, because we live very normal lives in comparison to that, right? Nobody ate locusts and honey for breakfast, maybe uh, honey oat Cheerios, but, but we didn't eat locusts and honey, unless you put some locusts on there, which adds a little crunch, but I digress. Very few of us... Uh, have anything that would even remotely resemble what John the Baptist went through or what he looked like. We have normal lives. Uh, very few people are scared when they come near us. Some kids are scared of me, but that's okay. Uh, most of the guys that are interested in Annie are scared of me, and that's by design. But we have an advantage in some ways because we don't have the social and relational barriers that John had. He obviously was, was kind of odd. So, so there were some people that maybe were a little reticent to kind of go near him just because of who he was. Now, we have the same calling that John has, as we'll see in a moment, but we don't have the barriers. So as we look at his life, we can draw the applications that we can still have and also have a very significant ministry. We can have great impact on the lives of a wide variety of people just like he did without those barriers in place. So what we're doing this month is we're looking at his life and his example and we're looking at some of the spiritual characteristics that the Lord requires of us in order to bring glory to Christ and in order to be more effective in our personal ministry. And if you're a believer this morning, you have a personal ministry. A lot of people think that, well, that's why we have pastors and that's why we have missionaries and, and elders and teachers, because they do the work of ministry. 
No, every believer is a priest. Every believer has the job of ministry. It's my full-time focus because God's called me to that. But that doesn't lessen the fact that if you're a believer this morning, you have a ministry where you are with the people that you're around using the gifts that God's given you. God wants you to be effective in ministering to people. So let's recap. We're in Matthew 3 this morning, but let's just give a, a real quick recap in case you weren't here last week or, or you didn't get to hear the message because you were serving and unfortunately we had some, some technical problems and we didn't get the podcast, but we'll get it this week, all right? But let's uh, take some notes this morning. Let's see the first characteristic and just talk about that for, for 90 seconds and then we'll move into our second characteristic. First characteristic we saw last week about John's life is that he was committed to being unencumbered and undistracted. John was committed to being unencumbered and undistracted. He was so committed to his calling that he was willing to, to live a life that was very different than those that he should have grown up with. And we saw last week that there were three ways that that was clearly expressed. One was that he was completely willing to be set apart and out of the mainstream. John was the ultimate nonconformist. He separated himself from everybody, and he chose to live out in the wilderness in preparation for the ministry that God had called him to because that was the way that he could be most focused on the Lord. So he was set apart. Second, he was willing to be uncomfortable, which we obviously know because he's living in the wilderness and he's dressed in camel fur and he's eating the locusts and honey. So, so he's so far beyond any discomfort that we're going to face this week. He, he's so past what we view as, well, I had a hard week. And some of us did have a hard week. Some of us faced real difficulty this week and real trial. And, and, you're, and you're bearing a burden this morning that's very heavy on you. But we're not being asked to live out in the wilderness by ourselves and eat bugs. So everything is a matter of perspective in life. It doesn't lessen the burden we have. It doesn't decrease the fact that maybe you're hurting this morning. But we do have the perspective that that uncomfortableness sometimes comes with walking with the Lord. So John was set apart. He was uncomfortable. And then third, he waited patiently for God's plan to be revealed. And as we saw and kind of did the timeline, 13 years he waited in the wilderness for Jesus to start his ministry. Out there biding his time, can't imagine the thoughts that he had, but, but there was a level of sacrifice there that, again, we don't uh, tend to, to experience. Now, as believers, the reason we're doing this is because every single one of us that claims the name of Christ this morning, every one of us that says, yes, I'm a Christian, I'm a believer, I've trusted Christ as my Savior, every one of us is called to the same level of commitment. What we're going to see as we study through John's life is a commitment that God has called us to. And we won't do that unless we are convinced in our faith in Christ and unless we're fervent in our convictions for Christ. We can't motivate somebody who's not convicted. Uh, a perfect example of that is try to get a teenager to weed. Right? You have, you have yard, weeds in the yard, and you're like, we need to get the weeding done. My mom used to, used to uh, I love my mom to death, but she used to drive me crazy. When it rained, she'd get this gleam in her eye, like, oh, good, it rained. Now we can weed. It's like, what is wrong with you? Oh, no, this is great. Son, get your gloves on. We're going to weed. 
Yay, Mom, because I didn't want to watch Gilligan's Island in my air-conditioned house. I wanted to go out in 95-degree human weather and weed. There's no motivation without conviction, right? How many know that's true? You're, you're not going to do something that you don't believe in. At least you're not going to do it with any level of joy. So when we hear God's calling us to conviction and God's calling us to commitment and, and, and this level that John showed, uh, that, that now that's our calling too, and it's because of what Christ has done. We've been redeemed. We're saved. We're covered. We're filled with the Spirit. Oh, now God requires something? Yeah, God requires our life. But we're not going to follow through on that unless we're convicted about Christ. Now, this was the plan for John before he was born. And that doesn't necessarily follow our lives, although we know before the foundation of the world, God knows who is going to trust in him. God calls those people to himself. That salvation, God sees it. God's not limited by time. He knew before the world ever existed that in June of 1974 that I'd give my life to Christ in Charlotte, North Carolina. He knew that. He already, he already was aware of that. And he had already set a plan in place that when I did that, that I would be redeemed and forgiven and covered forever. He knew that. So God has a plan for each of us. But God had a specific calling for John. And what has struck me as I've studied this, and we'll look at Luke in just a minute, what has struck me as I've studied this is, yes, John had a calling on his life before he was born. It was ordained all the way back in the book of Isaiah. It was told to his parents, Zacharias and Elizabeth. But even though John had that calling, he had to still choose to accept that calling. See, God can call you to things. God can say, Paul Rhodes, I want you to do this with your life. Paul Rhodes, I want you to go here. I want you to serve me in this way. Whether it's an everyday thing or it's a life change in ministry, God, God has a plan. And when he calls us to that, he wants us to accept it. But we do have a choice. We're not robots. We have free will. So we can resist the will of God. We can disobey God, even as believers. So God puts this plan in place for John. I want you to be the forerunner for Christ. But John still had to accept that. And what sin tries to do, what the enemy tries to do, is he tries to lure us away from that and, and deconvince us. Is that a word? It is now. He tries to, to, tries to dissuade us from living in the will of God. God has certain things for you and me this week that he wants us to do. There are conversations he wants us to have. There are ways we can minister to our spouse, ways we can teach our kids, ways we can help somebody at work, ways we can be kind to our neighbor, ways that we can show the love of Christ to somebody. That's, that's a daily calling. He has it in our lives this week, and we have a choice in that moment. Am I going to have that conversation and talk about Jesus Christ to this person that I'm, that I'm uh, with in this moment, or am I going to kind of shrink back and say, ah, it's not really the time. Am I going to love my neighbor as myself? Am I going to minister when I see them struggling? Am I going to walk over and say, let me help you with those bags. I just want to encourage you. Are, are we going to do that? Or are we going to say, they got it. My wrist is sore. See, every day we're making those decisions. And as we saw last week from Screwtape Letters, there's a persistent, insidious battle that the devil is fighting against us. 
He already knows he's defeated. He can read the Bible just like you and I can. He knows his kingdom has an end and that he will be in the lake of fire forever. But until that happens, he's going to fight us tooth and nail. And he's going to try to dissuade us from, from following the will of God in our lives. Now, as we face those everyday decisions, as we face the larger calling on a life, and God is calling some of you to something, in the next year, in the next six months, between now and December, God is going to call some of you to something. Maybe it's to go on a missions trip. Maybe it's to give a lot of money. Maybe it's to uh, sing in a choir. Maybe it's to teach a class. Maybe it's to work with fourth graders at VBS. I don't know what it is, but God's going to call you to something. How are you going to respond? The only thing that's going to drive you, the only thing that is going to move you and I past worldliness and passionlessness and reluctance is conviction. If we're convicted about Christ and we're convicted about living for Christ, it will change dramatically how we live every single day. And this is the second characteristic of John's life. And I want to encourage you to write this down. The first was he was committed to be unencumbered and undistracted. The second major characteristic of John the Baptist's life is that he chose conviction. He chose conviction over comfort and carefulness. He chose conviction over comfort and carefulness. And this is evident here in Matthew chapter 3. We're going to read 13 verse, or 12 verses this morning. Let's just read about the start of his ministry and see what he was called to and what he did. Chapter 3 of Matthew, verse 1. Now in those days John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Now John himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem was going out to him, in other words, the whole city, and all Judea and all the district around the Jordan. This is hundreds, thousands of people. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Therefore bear fruit in keeping with repentance and do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into the barn, for he, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Now, just review for a minute, because verse 2 makes it clear that John's life and John's ministry was not accidental. Isaiah had prophesied about it hundreds of years before. It was confirmed to his parents when, when John, uh, even before John was conceived. And I want you to keep your finger here and turn over a couple Gospels to Luke 1 just for a moment because I want, to, uh, I want us to see what was said about John when it was announced that he was going to be born. 
You remember from Christmas, Zacharias and Elizabeth, well past childbearing years, grieving that they had never had kids, but still faithful to the Lord. Uh, Zacharias was serving in the temple as a priest, and, and his time had come to serve, and an angel appears to him. You know the, you know the account. But look at what it said about John uh, in chapter 1. In verse 15, it said that he would be great in the sight of the Lord, that he drink no wine or liquor, and he'd be filled with the Holy Spirit even before birth. It says in verse 16 that he'd turn many of the sons of Israel back to God. It says in verse 17 that he'd be the forerunner of Christ in the spirit of Elijah, and that he would prepare people for the Lord. Then if you look over to verse 76, it says that he would be called a prophet of the Most High. And it says in verse 77 that he would give people the knowledge of salvation and forgiveness of sins because of God's mercy. So so John's responsibility is to specifically prepare people for the coming of Jesus. It's It's to be the one who would tell people the Savior is coming. And to do that, his lifestyle had to be pure and sacrificial. Now, the reason I showed you those verses in verses 15 to 17 is that John was essentially placed under what was called the Nazarite vow. Now, the Nazarite vow meant that your entire life was set apart to God and untouched by the vices of the world. I think that would be a great vow for every Christian to take. That, that you're untouched by the world, that you're not, you're not yielded to the vices of the world, and that you're set apart. And, and it says for John that one of the requirements will be that he drank no wine or liquor. Now, the reason for that is because alcohol is a very destructive and, and powerful influence, especially in this state where it's like water, it's like the national drink. And I've rarely talked about alcohol, but I'm going to for the next two minutes because alcohol ruins lives. Alcohol ruins marriages, alcohol ruins families, and it ruins health. And the biggest thing that alcohol ruins is people's witness. We, we in this state, are just addicted to alcohol. And I've never found one good thing that comes out of it. And I want to challenge you this morning, if that's part of your life, I want to challenge you and encourage you and exhort you to get rid of it. And I don't mean cut back. I mean get rid of it. Every leader in this church takes a promise, takes a vow that they will not touch alcohol. The reason for that is not because I'm a legalist. The reason for that is because I have seen how much damage it does to so many things. And I want to exhort you, look at this vow that John took. Why does God specifically say, you will not drink alcohol? He says, don't even drink wine. Because he knew that John's mind needed to be clear. And that to choose conviction over comfort and carefulness, that's one of the requirements. Now, that's my soapbox. I'm done for today. I'll come back at it another time, okay? According to number 6-2, the key to a Nazarite vow was that the person had to voluntarily and verbally agree to it. Now, why do I mention that? Because the Nazarite vow was essentially put on John before he was born. And his parents agreed to it. Yes, okay, we won't cut his hair, he won't drink alcohol or wine, and, and he'll be set apart, and he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit. But here's the thing, John still had to willingly accept that. 
You cannot confer salvation on another person. You also cannot confer conviction on another person. My parents grew up teaching me about Jesus Christ. As a believer, every parent should teach their kids about Jesus Christ. Don't depend on the church to do it. You do it. We'll support you. But my parents taught me about Christ. They taught me about the love of God. They taught me about salvation. They could not have been a better example, but I still had to come to the place in my life where that conviction became my own. When I was nine, I made that decision. When I went to college, God reaffirmed that decision. When I got called to ministry at the age of 20, God reaffirmed it again. And throughout my life, I've gotten more and more and more and more convicted that Christ is the only way. But my parents couldn't do that for me. God had to instill that in my heart. So John has the Nazarite vow, but he has to accept it. And that's what I want us to see. Turn back to Matthew for a second. That's what I want to see this morning. I want to give you very quickly, because time is short, the three aspects of his conviction, three three traits of his conviction, because he chose conviction over comfort. He chose conviction over being careful. So what do we know about his conviction? First, we know that his conviction was his life. His conviction was his life. He decided to live by his conviction from the outset. Everything in John's life was dictated by his conviction. In fact, I can't find any evidence in the word of God that John did even one thing that wasn't in line with his faith and his calling. So when he's growing up and his parents said, oh, by the way, the reason you've never gone to the barber is because you took a Nazarite vow. We took it for you, and you're going to be the forerunner for the Savior, and the forerunner is supposed to be a voice crying in the wilderness. So at some point, son, we're going to have to send you out into the wilderness where you're going to live without your hair cut, and you're going to eat bugs, and you're going to prepare for Jesus to come. And you know what? When they told him that, apparently John didn't flinch. Apparently, he never said, what do you mean? Are you crazy? Uh, you, you old coots, what's wrong with you? you? You put a vow on me before I was even born, and now you're telling me i got to leave all my family and all my friends and go out and live in the wilderness like some crazy man. Think about it. What would you do if you were 12 and told, bye, son, God loves you. Go out in the wilderness now and find some bugs and honey and, and do your best. Um, I'm calling DCFS on you guys. Something's not right here. Parents don't do this to their kids. John didn't flinch. Why? Because his conviction was his life. When they told him that, he just started getting ready. Now that raises a very important question for us. Are we just as willing, listen now, when the Lord calls us to a particular area of service. Are we compliant or do we complain? Are we grateful or do we gripe? Do we we wait for somebody else or something else to change before we have to do it? Or do we jump right in with both feet? The way we answer that question 
will be dependent on our spiritual conviction. And if we are really crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. If we're really for me to live as Christ, if that's really our conviction, then, then even when we're pushed, even when our comfort is stretched, we will gladly serve. But if our conviction's nominal and circumstantial and convenient, then our spiritual resilience will be just as nominal and circumstantial. And maybe our rationale is, well, come on, Paul. It's John the Baptist for Pete's sake. I mean, I mean, he's the greatest man ever born of a woman. I could never be a John the Baptist. How could I live like this? You know, the devil would like us to believe that. He'd like us to look for, for excuses and license to, to live less than because we can never be like this. But let's talk real quickly about John's responsibility. He was to prepare the way of the Lord He was to warn people. He was to call people to repent. He was to give people the knowledge of salvation. And he was to tell people that there's a Savior. You know what? Those are the exact same responsibilities Jesus gave to us when he left. Go into the world. Tell people about me. Be witnesses of me. Warn people that there is a price for sin. Give people an understanding that salvation is through me alone. You're a living example of it. Go tell people and call them to repent. The same responsibilities that John the Baptist had are the same responsibilities we have. John told them about it before Jesus' first visit. We tell them about it before his second visit. And when you think about that, that, that stirs us in a different direction. Because you say, well, I'm just, come on, Paul, you're picking on me. I'm just, I, I just, I'm a believer and I'm walking with the Lord. Yes, but we're also equipped with the very same spirit that John had. And we're given the very same calling that John had. And the Lord's hand is on us because we're indwelt by the spirit the same way it was with John. But is our conviction our life? Do we live driven by our conviction? Now, if that's the case, it's going to require a second aspect, and this is the second thought this morning. And this one's increasingly challenging in the times we live in. We have to be clear and unashamed about the whole gospel. Now, please hear me well. Holy Spirit, help us right now. We have to be clear and unashamed about the whole gospel. That means we cannot overemphasize, please hear this, we cannot overemphasize God's grace and God's mercy without giving a clear picture of man's sin and need for salvation. We also, on the other hand, cannot overemphasize man's guilt and put people at shame and talk about God being a judge without giving them a clear understanding of that table. That Christ died for our sins and that God offers salvation and forgiveness and cleansing, as the Bible says, to anyone who believes. Now, the trend in Christianity over the last 30 years has to go to one or, or, or the other extreme, either to overemphasize grace at the cost of sin or to overemphasize sin at the cost of grace. The, the prevailing trend has been the first, to overemphasize grace at the cost of talking about sin. And we've largely done that 
without talking about the balance of the gospel. If we would just study and teach, and I'm not talking about the pulpit here exclusively, I'm talking about believers. If we would study and teach the word of God without trying to be clever or hip or extra relevant, and I'll give you an example in a moment, then we would be so much more effective. If, if we just stay to this book and say Christ died for your sins, and you are a sinner, and all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is, tell me, eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. As many as receive him, to them gave you the power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Because God's not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. I just gave you four of the simplest verses that our kids know, and many of us don't. That's the gospel. I just explained the gospel in 12 seconds. If we just stay to the word and don't try to nuance it, we will be so effective. But here's the problem. We've taken the Holy Spirit and the Bible out of the equation. It's like we can't trust them to teach people in 2016. So we follow after our instincts and popular trends to tell us how to try to teach people. And that's always going to fail because God's not going to be replaced. Look at John's words back here in Matthew 3. Repent, because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, that is not a harsh message. That is not a harsh message. It is a gracious warning and a statement that the Lord is willing to give us an opportunity to turn from sin and receive his mercy. And people went out by the hundreds and thousands to hear John say it, and they were baptized, not to be saved. They were baptized. John's baptism was about preparing your heart as a statement of repentance. The message of the gospel went out. It's communicated to the people. They start to hear about the love of God. They start to hear that there's going to be a Savior, and they go out. And this is what we have to do. As we speak to people about the grace of God, we have to tell them that there is sin, but that there also is deliverance from sin. Let me give you an example. Julie and I were in Best Buy yesterday for a while, a couple hours. We were getting our phones up dated and switched over and and whatever my phone's been a nightmare I finally have my phone back so you can call me and text me praise the Lord thank you Lord for that because my life has been an electronic frustration for the last two months anyway we had such a nice surprising deep conversation with the salesman he great guy I just he was so helpful he was raised Catholic He became interested in Christianity. His parents split up. He moved to Missouri. He attended a great Assembly of God church I know in Missouri. But but when he came here, he says, I tried about 30 to 40 churches. That's a lot of churches. And he said, I was turned off by the lack of friendliness that was genuine. And I was turned off by the judgmental attitude that I found in so many Christians. And then he said something that I've heard stated so many times. He said, we don't have a right to judge anyone. Now, this has become a very big sticking point uh, in our culture. And, And to a point, it is right. Only the Lord can judge, not only because he's the only one that is allowed to, but because he has to. 
God has to judge sin because he's perfectly holy and man is completely sinful. So, so whether that's a sticking point or not with people, it really doesn't matter. It's not negotiable. If God's not holy, he isn't God. If God doesn't judge sin, then anything goes. But because he's holy, he has to hold man accountable. But here's what's so wonderful about the gospel. Before God executes that judgment that we're all deserving of, he first offers salvation to anyone. He first offers salvation to anyone who will repent of their sin and trust Christ as Savior. And as Christians, if you're a Christian this morning, we've been given that message to take to the world and we need to communicate it with love and forgiveness and the joy of knowing Christ. But we also need to make sure that we don't soft sell the Bible to make it palatable. There is a new thing that is out this week. I don't know if you saw it. My mouth dropped open. I'm not shocked by much, but I was shocked by this. There is now a new app for your phone where the Bible is in emojis. Everybody over 40 goes, what's an emoji? You know the little smiley faces that you see? Those are emojis. So now somebody has done a whole Bible for your phone in emojis. So anytime it's God, it's a smiley face with a halo. Really? Really? This is what we've come to. This this is why Christ died for our sins. You say, well, you're being anti-tech. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. I'm not being anti-tech. I'm being anti-disrespectful to the Bible. This is the holy word of God. And the rationale, and I'm sure it's well-intended, but the rationale is that it'll be easier for millennials. In other words, the millennials are so incapable of reading a word that we have to give them pictures now. Listen, most millennials I've met are really intelligent. And they're searching for truth. And do we think smiley faces are going to convince them about Jesus Christ? The bottom line is that we can't lessen the message to make it acceptable. At the end of the day, man is a sinner who needs a savior. But we must be aware that our culture has a certain mindset and we have to speak truth in love while still being faithful to the message of the gospel. And you know what? The gospel is going to offend many people. How do I know that? Because it tells us that. The gospel is an offense to many. There will be many people I'll talk to about Jesus Christ that will say, you're full of it. Forget it. I'm not listening to that. I don't need God. I don't need Jesus. I'll do what I want, and when I get to heaven, God will just accept me if he even exists. You know what? There are going to be many people that are going to do that, and there are going to be many people that reject us because they reject Christ. But that should not stop us one bit. It should only make us more broken about the lostness of the world and the desire to give them the hope and deliverance that only Christ can provide. And in doing that, look back at the text. I know my time's short, but I got to keep going here. Look at the text, and you get to verse 7. There are going to be times, this is where I disagree with my friend at Best Buy, there are going to be times where we have to challenge people who resist the Lord. 
It cannot be all non-judgmental. Now, it's not up to me to judge. God is the judge. He's the holy judge. But look at John the Baptist. He calls the Pharisees and Sadducees a brood of vipers. You know what that means in the Greek? Literally, essentially, it means you're the scum of the earth. You're dangerous. You're wicked. How dare you come out here acting like you're going to baptize, be baptized for repentance, like you have a heart that actually loves God because you don't. I know you. And he calls them out here. This is not exactly politically correct, is it? He doesn't mince words. Now, now you say, well, we can't do that. No, we can't. That can't be a regular social practice. Oh, you brood of vipers. Oh, neighbor, you're a brood of vipers. That's going to go well, isn't it? Your neighbor's really going to want to lend you his rake the next day. Oh, you call me a brood of vipers? It's okay. Here's my rake. Why don't you just keep it? So this is not a regular practice. But listen, if someone is, 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 is intentionally infecting people spiritually, or someone is really resisting God and, and being obstinate and, and brutal about it, there are times where we're going to have to say, you know what? You're in sin. I've had many counseling sessions where I've had to look at somebody and say, you are in sin. Was it nice? No. Was it politically correct? No. Did I enjoy it? Not for a moment, but sin has to be called out. It's the attitude with which we call it out. And here's what's so exciting. Look at the next sentence. You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Look at the next verse, verse 8. Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. I was so struck by how powerful this is. John looks at the Pharisees and Sadducees and says, you guys are in sin, but here's what you can do. You can repent. And if you repent, you will bear fruit. Christ will forgive you. Just repent. It's not just, you're so wicked, you're so awful. This is, this is what's happening some, with some factions of Christianity. Everything's criticized. Everything's judgmental. Everything's nasty. And you know what? That turns people away. But he says, here's the answer to that. Repent. Repent. Because God will forgive you. There's a death sentence on your life. You know what? I used to have the same thing. By the grace of God, by Jesus Christ, he forgave me of it. I didn't deserve it. I didn't earn it, not for a moment. It was solely by the grace of God. And you know what? That death sentence I used to have has been removed. And you have a death sentence right now in your life, and it can be removed too. You just have to turn to Jesus. As we tell people about, we tell them that, the hope. So, let's finish. John was a man of conviction. His conviction was his life. And as his conviction was his life, he was clear and unashamed about the whole gospel. Finally, look, let's finish with this. The depth of your conviction will always equal the depth of your spiritual maturity. The depth of your conviction will always equal the depth of your spiritual maturity and vice versa. The sacrifices that John made to live out what he believed were, were an, an undeniable statement that those beliefs weren't just situational. But here's where I believe the crisis of maturity is, is, is centered for most people. Here's where I believe there's a crisis. For people who haven't trusted in Christ, the reason I believe is not that they don't believe in God. 81%, I think it is, of people in this country believe in God. The, the number of atheists is a small minority. 
Most people believe in some sort of God, whether it's wrong, wrong person, doesn't matter. Most people believe in God. So I don't think people reject Christ because they don't believe in God. I think they reject Christ because they know that repenting and receiving him will require a lifestyle change. And interestingly, I think the same reason applies for people who have been saved but are not maturing and bearing fruit like they should. Usually the sentence that I hear when I talk to people is, I really want to grow and I really want to give up X or Y in order to be serious and mature. But when push comes to shove, they just don't want to. And the reason is that it's, it's, it's logical to do that. It's, it's somewhat of a desire to do that. Let me come back to alcohol for a minute. Well, I know alcohol has been in my life all my, and my father was an alcoholic. So you're going to repeat that trend. Because you have resentment against your father because he was an alcoholic, but now you're doing the same thing. Well, well, it's just part of my life. The people I hang out with, they, they, they drink too. Okay, but, but you're saying it's controlling you and it's ruining your marriage and, and your kids are looking at you and it's a problem for them because they're looking at your example and now they want to drink, but you don't want them to. So, so I'm just picking on one thing this morning. So, so you really know it's right to do this, to, to stop it, and it's a desire, but here's what it's not. It's not a conviction. Because a conviction is a firm, fixed belief that can't be moved away from. You can't dissuade me. You will never dissuade me that Jesus Christ died, died for my sins and rose again and freed me from You will never dissuade me from that. Why? Because it's a conviction. You want to tell me the Packers are going to win this year? I hope so, but it's not a conviction. I think they got problems in, at free safety and all kinds of stuff. Uh, that's not a conviction. It's a hope. I desire it. Wouldn't be great. Cubs, I hope, are going to win this year. I'll go to the parade if they do. It's going to be fabulous. But, but it's not a conviction yet. You know what will be a conviction? When it happens. Your convictions, my convictions, will become real when we do them. Conviction comes from the Holy Spirit. True conviction is always based on the word of God and it's always based on holiness and it's always about bringing glory only to God. So let me close with this. What is your conviction this morning? What are you unwavering from? What, what can you not be dissuaded from this morning about the Lord and about your walk? Because John, when we look at his life, he says, I got a vow in my life. I'm going to be the forerunner for Christ. I got to go out in the wilderness. I got to wait. I got to separate myself. I got to talk about the gospel. I got to call people to repentance. I'm there. And you will not move me. You will not dissuade me. Because that's what I believe. What is that in your life this morning? What are those convictions that are causing you to steadily mature in your faith and be more in love with Jesus Christ every single day? What are those convictions that are making you effective for the Lord?